Great, good evening everyone. Good to be with you tonight. And as Andy said right at the very start, we're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Peter tonight. So if you'd like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you'd like to look it up in the Church Bible, it's page 1219. So 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that uh, in this next period of our service this evening that, that you would speak to us and bring your word alive in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are continuing this journey in um, 1 Peter. And if you were here last Sunday evening. Was it the last Sunday evening you were preaching? No, the Sunday before, two Sundays ago. Um, Ellen was preaching on the bit just before this, and her theme for the evening was, was mindset. Mindset, taking her cue from uh, the opening words of the chapter, therefore, since Christ suffered in this body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude. And I can't help but think that the that word mindset is equally relevant to us this evening and to this passage that we're going to look at. Because what Peter seems to want more than anything else is for his readers and his listeners to respond in an unusual way from a world's perspective, in a Christian way, to the suffering that they are experiencing. Now, Peter was no ivory tower theologian. He knew what suffering looks like. He'd obviously been there um, watching as his saviour Jesus was abused and crucified. He'd been imprisoned himself for his faith. He'd witnessed the persecution of the early church. So he's not just speaking about suffering from an academic perspective. He knew what it was like to suffer. And so it's with a kind of gentle pastoral heart that he begins this section. I don't know if you noticed that. Dear friends, there's a kind of There's a softness to his introduction because he's going to tell them some some tough truths about suffering. But he wants to tell them these things and he wants them to receive these things in love. He's not writing about self-inflicted suffering. He says that in verse 15. So, you know, we know people, don't we, who bring suffering upon themselves because of their, their poor choices. And he outlines some of those examples in verse 15, but it's not that kind of suffering that he's talking about. He's talking specifically about suffering 
as a Christian, suffering for faith. And as I was going through it, it struck me that he says um, seven surprising things about suffering. Seven surprising things about suffering. So, without further ado, here's the first one. That suffering shouldn't surprise us. The first surprising truth about suffering is that suffering shouldn't surprise us. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus himself had said to his disciples, if the world hates you, this is in John 15, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So suffering should not surprise us. What should surprise us, perhaps is that at least in this part of the world, we're not suffering very much, if at all. In other parts of the world, suffering for one's faith is extreme, but by and large not in the UK. Um, And it's not my theme for tonight, but it's a question we perhaps ought to ask ourselves. Why is it that we've got it so easy in the UK as Christians? Is it because we've compromised so much that the world loves us as it loves its own, was the question I was wrestling with earlier this week. But that's for another time. So that's the first surprising truth about suffering, that suffering in itself for faith should not surprise us. Secondly, suffering is purposeful. We've just sang that. I don't know if you realised it when you were singing it. From him, from you are all things, we sang. And here Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. Or in verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And this might be an uncomfortable truth for us if we have come to believe that a loving God who can do anything wouldn't let us suffer, surely. Surely he'd rescue us from the kind of circumstances that other people suffer. But that's not the case, not always at least. In the early 16th century, William Tyndale was translating the New Testament into English. And at the time, he was in hiding. He was in exile um, in Northern Europe. Translating the New Testament at that time was strictly forbidden because the church hierarchy took the view that if people could read the Bible in their own language, all sorts of heresies would spring up. And therefore, there had to be strict control over uh, the translation and it, you know, in, in Latin so that only those who knew it and understood it could read it and explain it to those of us who couldn't. And the Bishop of London was determined that no one should get a copy of Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. So he commissioned his agents to go around the country and to find 
every possible copy they could get and to burn them. Ironically, though, the money that, that they spent on buying up all of those copies enabled Tyndale to carry on his work and to then go on to translate the Old Testament. Now, eventually, he was uh, betrayed, he was imprisoned, he was charged with heresy, he was condemned to be burned to death. His final words, apparently spoken at the stake, were these, Lord, open the, the King of England's eyes. But what's astonishing is that within four years, four English translations of the Bible were published in England at the King's instruction, including what was to become the world-famous King James Version of the Bible. All of those four translations were based on William Tyndale's work. Suffering is purposeful. Thirdly, suffering is participatory. Verse 13, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In a way that we cannot fully understand, but which we can accept by faith, the believer shares in Christ's suffering just as Jesus shares in our suffering. The New Testament has a lot to say about how, as believers, we are connected to Christ. Again, we heard about that this morning in the, in the message on Colossians, how we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ in God. We're connected in a mysterious way. We are his body, is a, a metaphor that's used again and again in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, we read of how Saul, who persecuted the church, was stopped dead in his tracks by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not why do you persecute my followers. He said, why do you persecute me? Jesus identified with the church so much that to persecute the church was to persecute Jesus himself. So in, in a way that we cannot fully understand, but we accept by faith, suffering is participatory. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Fourthly, suffering leads to joy. Again, this is counterintuitive. We kind of think suffering is at the opposite extreme to joy, but apparently not. Verse 13. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So Peter links our present suffering with our future joy. And actually, when we stop to think about it, we can see how that principle of pain now, joy later, does play out in other aspects of life. So the pianist, for example, Brendan's been playing beautifully tonight. The pianist has to go through that phase of you know, learning the scales and the discipline involved in that, um, which probably isn't particularly interesting for much of the time. But there comes a point when there is a certain freedom, and with that freedom comes the joy to play. Or the athlete. 
you know, puts in the hours of training and discipline and self-denial, ultimately, not because they enjoy the pain, but because of the hope of joy that comes with winning something. Simon Gibo, who has spoken at this church several times, remembers an occasion when he was feeling lonely and homesick while he was in Burundi. And a man called Livingstone came to visit him, and this is what Simon writes. As I wallowed in self-pity, he gently reminded me of his own situation. He had fled civil war in his homeland, but then got caught up in the Congolese troubles. So had walked for 30 days through hundreds of miles of jungle. He had a bullet wound in his back to show for it and hadn't seen or heard of his wife and children for six years. As a refugee, he had minimal rights, no job, a hovel to sleep in and a seemingly bleak future. Yet despite his personal circumstances, Livingstone was truly alive, counting his blessings, full of the Holy Spirit. And he had come round to encourage me, even though I had so much more than him. And I realised that he was one of the many African men and women who, through the crucible of suffering, had been elevated to loftier heights of intimacy with their heavenly Father. This man, Livingstone, who had lost in human terms so much, was full of joy. Suffering leads to joy. A fifth surprising truth. Suffering is a blessing. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Peter is echoing, I'm sure, the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember these words from Jesus, Matthew 5? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter says, you're blessed. How fortunate you are, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 14. It occurred to me that sometimes we pray for the spirit of glory to come down and rest on us, don't we? But I wonder if we know what we're praying for. I wonder if we're willing to accept what comes with that. The spirit of glory and of God rested on the prophets. He rested on Jesus. He rested on those early disciples. But with that came suffering. Peter says, you're suffering. You're suffering like Jesus did. You're suffering like the prophets did. Count it as a blessing. Another story from the past. This is a picture of Alexander Solonitsyn. He was a Russian novelist and historian. He was commander of the Red Army. He was awarded the Red Star for services to his country. But he started to have doubts about the moral foundations of the Soviet regime. And in 1945, he was imprisoned with the accusation being anti-Soviet propaganda. But it was there that he found faith in God. And it was from prison that he wrote these words. 
It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And then he finishes, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Suffering is a blessing. Sixthly, suffering is an honour. Verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Again, going back to the book of Acts, Peter and the other apostles had been flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so what do we read? We read they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. They'd be They'd been counted worthy of suffering. So they were rejoicing as they were coming out of prison. Amazing. Um, I said at the start, Peter is not writing about the kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves by our own uh, wrong choices. He's writing about suffering as a Christian. But this word Christian, I think, has got so muddy and uh, bland in our days that we can forget what it, it actually meant. So in our day, it can mean pretty much anything, can't it? It can mean a churchgoer or someone who lives by a moral code, someone who's born in England. Um, you know, it can, can mean pretty much anything. But this word is only used here and in two places in the New Testament, both in the book of Acts. And it simply meant a follower of Christ. A Christian was someone who followed the teaching of Jesus Christ, who believed it, and tried to put it into practice. That's what it was. That was their badge of honour. It became um, an insult, ultimately. But that's, that's what the word simply means, a follower of Jesus. So what Peter's saying is, if you get in trouble for standing up for your belief in the teaching of Jesus today, if you get into hot water because you take your stand on what the Bible says rather than what society is telling you you should believe, then treat that as an honour. Treat it as an honour. The world may say you're a disgrace. The world may say your beliefs are shameful. There's no place for that kind of thing in today's society. But Peter says it's an honour. It's an honour. And then finally, the seventh surprising thing about suffering is suffering anticipates judgment. Verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And maybe for some of us, this is the most uncomfortable aspect of Peter's teaching on suffering because he draws a line in these two verses, an uncomfortable line. He says on the one side, uh, we have God's household, us, he puts himself in that category, the righteous, that's on one side of the line. And on the other side of the line, he distinguishes uh, those who do not obey the gospel, the ungodly, the sinner, 
This fiery ordeal, Peter says, is a judgment. Judgment not necessarily in the sense of condemnation, but rather like an assessment, a testing, an evaluation. And he's saying that if this test has started with the people of God, and it's a tough test, then how much tougher is it going to be for those who are on the other side of the line? Now, in this particular part of the letter, Peter doesn't spell out the answer to that question. It is spelt out in many other places in the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, Peter elsewhere, John, James, Jude, the writers of the Hebrews, all talk about the consequences of not believing in Christ. But here, he simply invites us to think about it with this question. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If judgment, if testing has begun with the house of God and it's tough, what will it, what will it be like for those who are outside the household of faith? Seven surprising truths about suffering. Let's just have a quick recap. It shouldn't surprise us. It's purposeful, participatory, it leads to joy, it's a blessing, it's an honour, and it anticipates judgment. And it is good, I think, that we go through books like 1 Peter, because probably, you know, if I had a free subject, I wouldn't be picking this passage to speak on tonight. Probably I'd be choosing something much more cheerful and upbeat. But... That's the thing about preaching through a, a, a book in the Bible. You come across these passages and you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? What is it that God wants to say to us today? Because all of God's word is truth. And it's by his truth that he shapes our minds. And it's as our minds are shaped that our lives are transformed. So if we want our lives to be transformed... We have to not gloss over the tough bits in God's word, but give them the same attention and diligence that we do to the bits that we love. You know, those verses that we love to quote and remember and reflect on because they bring us comfort. They're God's truth too. But so is this. And all of God's word is transformational. So the question to ask ourselves and happily, Peter gives us the answer in these verses, is how do we respond? How do we respond to these seven surprising truths about suffering? And I've picked out three surprising responses to suffering. I think they're just as surprising as the truths themselves, but here we go. So number one, Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What an extraordinary response to suffering, to praise God. You know, our natural response maybe would be to complain or get angry or get grumpy, but Peter encourages the very opposite of what we, would be, what we would be naturally inclined to do. He says, give thanks to God. 
Rejoice in God. Praise God. And he's given us some of the reasons. We've looked at them already. Because suffering is purposeful and participatory, because it leads to joy and it's a blessing and it's an honour and so on and so forth, we have got good grounds for giving thanks to God in the most difficult of circumstances. That's the first surprising response we find. Then in verse 19, we have the word commit. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Peter uses a banking term. So, you know, we commit our money to the financial institutions because we trust them, rightly or wrongly, we trust them to look after our money. We, we trust them enough that, you know, we'll, we'll leave thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions, not me, we'll leave lots of money in the bank because we trust that it'll be safe and secure and that when we need it, it will be there for us. That's, that's the meaning of this word that Peter is using here. We commit into safekeeping um, what is important to us. I don't know about you, but I've often, perhaps not often, sometimes, imagined myself in the kind of situations that we read about and hear about in other parts of the world. And I've asked myself, would I be able to stand up to that kind of persecution or suffering? And the answer is nearly always no. But then I remind myself that God gives us the grace for the moment, not in advance. So if you share that same anxiety, then please let me encourage you with the help that that gives to me. That God gives us grace when we need it, not in advance when we don't. But the one thing that we can do in advance is commit our way to God. You know, we don't know what's around the corner next week, tomorrow even. We don't know. We, we, think, you know. we think there's a certain routine that we'll be following. We'll get up and we do whatever we do on Monday mornings. But we don't know. We don't know what's around the corner. But what we do know, what Peter does want us to know, is that there is a safe place where we can commit our lives. We can commit our lives to our faithful creator, and know that our lives are in his safekeeping. Right at the very start of this series, in chapter 1, Peter said this, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Nothing is safer than what is in the hands of our faithful creator. So Peter encourages us to commit to him. So rejoice, commit, and then finally continue. The end of verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What, even though my doing good has been the cause of my suffering? Yes. If you're suffering as a Christian, we don't turn back because the way is hard. We press on. We don't give up because following Christ 
brings us trouble. We persevere. We keep on keeping on. We continue to do good. We just keep doing it. So Winston Churchill once said, success isn't final, failure isn't final. It's the courage to continue that counts. He wasn't speaking from the perspective of faith, but he spoke a true word there. It's continuing with courage and just leaving the future in God's hands because that's the safest place to leave it. Now, it's unlikely that any of us in this room are going through what the believers in Peter's time and place were going through. But I think we have in these verses, particularly in these, these three instructions, some principles that we can take into other aspects of our lives. So just think for a moment about your circumstances or the circumstances of someone else going through a tough time at the moment. So when we are in pain, whatever kind of pain, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, choosing to rejoice, that's how we started the service, wasn't it? Blessed be your name, when the sun's shining down on me or when it's not. When the world's as it should be, in our view, or when it's not. Whatever the circumstances, we rejoice. Rejoicing is the right response, however difficult it might feel to us. Rejoicing is the right response. And then secondly, committing. However anxious we might feel about the future, or worried that we might not be able to stay and continue with our faith, given whatever circumstances we might face. Choosing to commit myself and my future into God's hands is the right response. Not kind of putting the pressure on myself to, to keep going, to keep it up, but committing my life to Christ, entrusting it into his safe hands. That's got to be the right response, hasn't it? In difficult circumstances. And then thirdly, this thought about continuing, even though I'm in difficult circumstances and the way ahead appears to be no easier, continuing is the right response, isn't it? Not giving up and saying, oh, it's too hard. This Christian faith thing is too hard. You know, God's not coming through for me or whatever we might think or, or say. No, we continue. We continue to do what is right. That is the right response. So whatever you're going through um, at, at this particular point in time or whatever someone you love is going through, I think here are three principles that we can apply to ourselves and pray for ourselves and pray for others. Rejoice, commit, continue. Even in this passage about suffering, for faith which seems so remote for many of us tonight, those three principles are so incredibly practical and relevant to our day-to-day -day lives today. Amen.